And if you would now take your Bible, uh, your copy of God's Word, and go to Matthew chapter 5. In this series in the book of Matthew, uh, we've made our way uh, through the Beatitudes and well, through much more before that, uh, looking at the birth of Christ, uh, His baptism, early, just beginning uh, early ministry as He goes out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Uh, the Spirit is with Him as He uh, has been praying and uh, fasting for 40 days and uh, then is tempted by the devil uh, now comes to a mountain with disciples as they follow him up to teach them. And uh, this Jesus has come off of just saying, the, giving the Beatitudes. And then last week we looked at Jesus as he says uh, in Matthew chapter 5 that he did not come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And in the next six sections uh, through the rest of the chapter uh, Matthew 5 we will see what Jesus means by that. When he says, I didn't come to abolish, put away the Old Testament law, but I have come as an authoritative one to give the word of God to you in fulfillment of what the law meant to do in us. What was the purpose of the law? Why was it given to us? And we pray as we look through these next six sections uh, we'll get to this one this morning and two others before we break for our summer series in the Psalms. So a little bit difficult maybe, as then we'll jump back in, in the fall into uh, Matthew 5, but I think we'll pick up just fine. Matthew 5 uh, verse 21 is where we'll begin in our reading this morning. It says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you paid the last penny. Would you join me as we pray and ask for the Lord's help? Father, we thank you, as we mentioned, for your word. What a gift you have given to us. Uh, to reveal yourself to us. What a gift you have given to us in your Son, the Word made flesh, who came and dwelt among us, that we might know you. Uh, and in knowing Jesus, that we might know the Father. Uh, Father, what a gift of grace that Jesus comes and teaches uh, how we uh, could delight in following you and what that might look like. Uh, Father, what, what tremendous grace you have showered upon us uh, before the foundations of the world, before anything had existed uh, apart from you in Holy Trinity. And God, what a gift. God, we ask uh, you, our Father, and your Spirit for uh, help this morning as we look into your word. Uh, may you open our eyes to understand the scriptures, to feast on them, and that you would pull it in deeply, that it would marinate and sit, and that, Father, we would, we would obey, uh, and that what would come out of us is your word for your glory 
for the edification of your people and the furtherance of your kingdom uh, to those who do not yet know you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Just real briefly, I don't know if you noticed, uh, but I now have oh, this hand, three leaves. Uh, last, last week we only had one coming out of my head, and so I thought I'd let that one have some friends, and uh, we now can see three leaves with us this morning. Here in Matthew 5, 21, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, specifically one of the Ten Commandments, in saying, you shall not murder. You know this, you've heard it said uh, to those of old, you shall not murder. As it states that you should not murder someone, and if you do, you will be guilty of judgment. You cannot take the life of another person. That is sin. And in the Old Testament law, we see that punishment for taking a life is losing your life. Also, the law gave punishments for manslaughter, for accidental deaths, for the death of a woman who is pregnant, for killing someone out of self-defense, and many more specifics in regards to the loss of life and its punishment. The law is given in Exodus 20 as part of the Ten Commandments, but even back in Genesis 9, God states to Noah that those who kill a man will be killed by man. Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The reason for this is because man was made in God's image. God is the author of life and God is the only one who can take life. Going back even further in the Old Testament, though, we see murder all the way back in Genesis 4 as the first brother kills his brother. Genesis 4.8, Cain spoke to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, every type of sin has been in existence in our hearts, even the heinous act of taking someone else's life. The Bible is not shy at hiding this sin on its pages. In fact, we see murder all over the Old Testament, and even in the lives of those who are considered heroes of the faith. The command to not murder is still as applicable today as it was in Jesus' day, and as it was when it was originally given to the people of Israel. Sadly, people disobey God's laws. People kill other human beings made in the image of God every single day. A few statistics. In 2017 alone, there were 405,000 homicides and almost 800,000 cases of self-murder or suicide. That is over 3,000 people every day who were killed by murder of one sort or another, and no doubt many others that are recorded in other ways. No one likes those numbers. We don't want any person to die at the hands of a human being, or die in any way, for that matter. We don't want anyone to die at all. All life is precious. And while the numbers for death by natural causes are so much higher than those by murder, again, in the year 2017, there were almost 18 million deaths by heart disease, 9.5 million deaths by cancer, and over 6 million deaths by respiratory diseases. The fact remains that these deaths by homicide and suicide are not natural. They are unnatural in that they are not caused by disease or sickness, but by our own hands. 
They represent lives being lost before they would have naturally passed away. They are a different type of loss. They are different to process and to find closure for. The same stats that I've been reading said that over 50 million people died in 2017. Can you believe that? 50 million people. And yet those stats are missing a number. A murder number, actually. Those numbers would be almost doubled if they included this number. Abortion took somewhere between 40 and 50 million lives in 2017 alone. The largest crisis the world has ever known that takes more lives than anything else that deserves more safety plans, legislative orders, and prevention than any virus is abortion. Abortion is murder as it takes a healthy human life before it would have naturally passed away. Jesus commands, excuse me, Jesus quotes the Old Testament command that you should not murder. And yet over 40 million children are murdered every year, most of it legally, in the world. And what is done about it? Thankfully, the Lord is a judge, and the Lord knows. Murder in any form is so atrocious. We turn our eyes when it is shown in a movie. We don't want our children playing games that trivialize murder. They don't set up bleachers for viewing areas at crime scenes. And most find it grotesque that videos are posted online when tragic murders are recorded. And yet Jesus says that we can act glibly about something that we might do daily. And even though it's not murder, it has the same consequences. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 21-22, that the person who is angry with his brother, a spiritual brother or physical brother, biological brother, I would guess, is in danger of the same punishment as the one who murdered someone. It says you are liable to judgment. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. The one who insults his brother will be liable to the council. The one who says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus not only quotes the Old Testament law here, but also speaks with authority what truly obeying that law looks like in the life of the one who follows Jesus. Jesus makes himself on par with the prophets and writers of the Old Testament, something that would have gotten any other teacher in that day killed. The letter of the law says you should not extinguish someone else's life. Kill them. But Jesus says that actually you could be guilty of the same eternal punishment for something that seems far more respectable and frankly something we do more than we probably realize. We might think that we can hate someone, speak evil about them, or hold a grudge against them. But as long as we don't kill them, we're fine. Not true, Jesus says. Both in the end will result in loss of life. And both in the end, if not repented of, will result in eternal damnation and judgment. It's serious. One author states that Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. 
by saying that the real issue underneath murder is not the act itself, as wrong and devastating and consequential as it is, but the heart or inner disposition of the person. Being angry and insulting another person made in God's image, not just the outward physical act of murder, is wrong and worthy of judgment. The context in 1 Samuel 16 is, is Samuel looking for a new king uh, for Israel among Jesse's sons. But the idea is that God cares and sees the heart of the person. The 1 Samuel 16, 7, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The one liable or found guilty is answerable, must be given account for something that is held against them. The person who murders someone and the person who is angry with someone are both guilty and will be judged. Those who are angry with their brother, those who insult their brother, those who speak damning words on their brother are all guilty of sin and therefore hell. The judge, the counsel, and God himself are the ones who will issue such judgment. Judgment that is eternally based on their treatment of their brother. It's serious. The punishments here are the same. Eternal separation from God and torment in hell. For our anger and insults towards another person without repentance and reconciliation. The counsel here that is seen in verse 22 in your translation might be the Sanhedrin. In Roman times, this was the highest indigenous governing body in Judea. It was composed of high priests, elders, and scholars, and met with the highest of ultimate authority, not only in religious matters, but also in legal and governmental affairs. The Sanhedrin or the council will be issuing judgment. But here Jesus is invoking other courts. Those who will come and condemn. There's not an escalation of, uh, of faults or transgressions here. There's not an escalation of punishment here in verse 22. It's all the same. Insulting a brother. Damning them with your words. Being angry at them. Brings about punishment and is serious. As serious as murder. It is sin to take the life of any other human being. It is also sin to speak evil of your brother or to your brother, to harbor anger towards them. Our outlook on anger and speaking evil to or about others should be the same as our outlook is about murder. We would never murder someone. Then we should never be okay to be angry with them. I would never think of killing someone then I should never think of speaking evil to them or gossiping about them. Sometimes Christians can be the best at looking for loopholes in the rules. Sometimes, when we, sometimes we cannot be completely honest. Okay, well, so I'm not mad or angry with this person, but I'm hurt or offended. As if changing the words makes it any different in our heart. I'm not speaking evil to my brother, but I'm telling him the truth in love. We often can justify 
whatever actions that we do. Sometimes we can go to great lengths to cover up what is really going on inside our hearts. We sweep the anger or bitterness under the rug and maybe mumble hurtful words under our breath or share them with someone else instead of the person we're angry with. We do so because we don't think anger and insults are a big deal. Let me try to illustrate this. Let's say you're on a road trip. You're a few minutes in to the trip and you just got on the interstate. The cruise control is set when someone in the back seat shouts that they have forgotten something at home. And would you please go back and get it? The last thing you want to do right now is to start the trip off wasting 10, 20, 30 minutes going back home and getting something. You can't believe it. But we don't always go back for the item that was left, do we? No way. The range of items can be from a stuffed animal to a blanket to a book to a pen to a phone to something that would be seemingly unimportant for the success of the trip. We all ask the important question, do you need that item? There are only a few items that fall into the range, uh, the category of need. One, a pacifier, if the baby must have it to fall asleep. Uh, that blanket, or maybe a stuffed animal, if that is the same case. They have to have it to fall asleep. Uh, but something that we need, something like your wallet. Maybe prescription medications that have to be taken. Your cell phone, if that is something that's forgotten, and if it's the driver who forgot it, now you have to go back, right? Of course. But what if you were further away? What if instead of just being a few minutes down the road or just getting on the interstate, you're a couple hours away and you realize you lost your, or left your wallet or your phone? How far are you willing to go back home to get the trip off on the right foot. Murder is really serious, and we understand its gravity, but so is being angry, and so is insulting someone. In fact, they are so serious that Jesus says that if you're in the middle of sacrificing an animal at the altar, you're in the middle of worship, that you should leave your offering right there at the altar. Go back to your brother, reconcile with him. And then after that, come and finish your sacrifice to God. Reconciliation and forgiveness are so important that they should disrupt your worship and cause you to go and immediately take care of it. You can't take a successful road trip without your wallet and phone. You cannot worship fully when things are not right between you and your brother or sister. Now, we sometimes use this to say, and I think that I've said this before, that if you're in the middle of our Sunday gathered worship or, uh, and, and you are convicted that your brother has something against you, you've wronged him or spoken evil of him, then you should leave church, not participate in the Lord's Supper maybe, and go be reconciled with that person right away. But maybe it can wait. Maybe we justify and say, you can wait until after church. I don't want to disrupt my family. I've got to think about my family here. I've got to drive them home. 
what would they do if I take the car and go reconcile with my brother? Why is the person you're reconciling with not in church right there? But nonetheless, maybe I can do it later when it's more appropriate so as not to be a distraction. Maybe after lunch, after church, that might be better. Then we have a full stomach and we can better sit down and talk for a while. Or maybe, I, I don't want to interrupt them during the Seahawks game, so maybe we'll just do this whole reconciliation thing after the Seahawks win, hopefully. If they lose, then maybe I should wait a day because he might be pretty depressed and sad, and I don't go over and make it even worse for him. You see how all of a sudden reconciliation gets delayed? Doesn't interrupt our worship? Doesn't interrupt our schedule at all? It's not important? But Jesus here is preaching this message in Galilee. And the only place where there was an altar to bring sacrifices to was 80 miles away in Jerusalem. It could be that Jesus is showing the serious nature of anger and insults by the extent to which we ought to go out of our way to reconcile with someone. Imagine, if you live in Galilee and are going to Jerusalem to worship with your sacrifice, and you've just walked four days to Jerusalem, you secured your sacrifice, made your way to the altar, and then, of all times, your heart burns within you because you know your brother has something against you. And you must take care of it. So you leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Travel four days home to reconcile with your friend. Travel four days back to offer your sacrifice, only to turn around after offering it and walk four days back home. The likelihood of someone doing that is incredibly slim. Probably never. But our view of anger and insults ought to be that it is so serious, we would be willing to do this to repair the relationship. To be able to confess and reconcile and to forgive. If you are like me at all, you are already crafting excuses as to why this would not be practical at all for the guys worshiping to leave a sacrifice and travel home just to reconcile. You might say, I can just do it when I get home. Or that was months ago that he had something against me. Uh, we had that falling out or fight. What's the big deal about leaving now to take care of it? Or won't it be weird for me to go to him now after so much time has passed? I pushed it under the rug. It's taken care of. No harm, no foul. Or, but it was them that started the fight. If they would have just calmed down, we could have talked things over. Or shouldn't he come to me first? You know what's funny is that Jesus doesn't give it room for excuses because he knows if we did, we would, never, we would always use them and never reconcile. He doesn't say that if your situation looks exactly like the one here in the Scriptures, then you have to go and be reconciled right now with your brother. He says that we are to initiate costly reconciliation with our brother. That even if you are four days away, you stop the important task that you are doing right now. You stop this religious activity that you are doing, seeking communion with your father, seeking to be forgiven of your sins and transgressions when you know there's something you need to take care of. 
Stop that activity right now and go be reconciled to your brother. Whatever the important activity is, he's not saying this can only happen during worship. But anytime, we don't go to an altar to only worship or to come and repent before our Father of our sins. But when we do and we're convicted, now's the time. I need now, when I'm convicted, to initiate costly reconciliation with my brother or sister who have something against me. Am I willing to pay the price of reconciliation? Not looking for a way out that is less costly. Jesus knows that what you and I need when our relationship with a brother has been broken by anger or harmful words that, in all honesty, might have been sugar-coated when they were given to us. Often the most harmful things come as a backhanded compliment or sugar-coated poison. Jesus knows that what we need is reconciliation, honest confession of our sin, asking for forgiveness, seeking to restore wrongs. Someone has something against you. Leave what you're doing and go be reconciled to your brother. This is the one illustration Jesus gives that shows the importance of anger, that anger and its punishment are just as important as murder and its punishment. What you hold in your heart towards your brother, what you speak from your lips to a brother or about a brother is just as important as the action of taking a life and its punishment is the same. Someone has something against you, it probably implies a just claim. It's valid. And it also suggests that we ought not bring up our grievances with others that they don't yet know about, but that we deal with situations in which others remain upset with us. One author asked the question, if this were done in worship, and we took this, and he says, how many of our churches would or should be temporarily emptied if these commands of Jesus were taken seriously? Jesus doesn't say, sweep it under the rug and let it go. Because what always happens is years later, that rug is picked up. And the result is a mess. Far worse than the initial conversation and reconciliation would have been. Initiate reconciliation immediately and often. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.26 that it ought to be daily or nightly, as he puts it. He says, do, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. May there be daily recognition of our sin, confession, restoration in our relationship with God and with others that we know have something against us. The other illustration that Jesus gives in verse 25 and 26 is that we have done wrong and our accuser is taking us to court. If you are walking with your accuser, come to terms quickly while you're on your way to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison, found guilty, 
you will never get out until you pay the last penny. Should we buckle down in our story of how things went when somebody accuses us? Go all the way to court, go all the way to the final piece, wait and never be restored to them? Lie, hope for the best? These accusations are true. It's not saying someone has accused you falsely. That is in other parts of the message Jesus is preaching. But here someone brings an accusation that will be found true. You will be found guilty of this. What do you do? Lie? Try to get out of it? Act like it never happened? Oh, I didn't mean that. You're being so sensitive. I never would have meant it that way. But you know in your heart. You know you have done wrong. Jesus says, no way. We should take advantage of the opportunity for reconciliation now while it has presented itself. In the illustration, Jesus says that if you don't reconcile then, you will not get the chance in the courtroom. You may be found guilty by the judge and handed over to the guards to lock you in prison. And the idea is forever. Similar wording is used later in Matthew, in Matthew 18, a passage that looks at more restoration and reconciliation of a brother who is in sin and has wronged us. Matthew 18, verse 34 says, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The images of eternal judgment, where you are locked away until you can pay every cent. The reality is you can never pay the cost of your redemption. And you would be locked away, punished forever and justly so. To be unrepentant of wrongs that you have committed to others. Don't wait for it to go to court. Settle it now. Settle these accounts daily. Reconcile immediately and often. Reconcile with someone every time you are given the chance. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word reconcile appears. There are other Greek words that are translated in the New Testament as reconcile. And typically, as it is in 2 Corinthians 5, where the word shows up several times, it is the idea of an exchange of hostility for a friendly relationship. Whereas this word reconcile means to be restored to normal relations or harmony with someone. There are hundreds of excuses we could think of as to why we should not initiate reconciliation and reconcile when given the chance. What if they don't listen? We've tried it before and it didn't work. You just don't know what type of person she is, etc. And yet, we know exactly the type of person we are. We are like Cain, who killed his brother out of jealousy and anger. We are like Jacob's sons, who were envious of the preferential treatment Joseph received and the special gifts he was given. So we hated him, and we wanted to kill him, and we allowed his father to believe <coughs> that he had died. We are the angry mob who insulted the Son of God, shouted and jeered at him, chanted that he be executed. We are selfish people. And when we don't get our way, we are angry and we lash out at others 
and murder them in our thoughts and words. We harbor bitterness towards those who have wronged us. We refuse to be the first to reconcile. We feel free to throw insults about because we are hurt, envious, mad, or scared. We feel pain and we want someone else to feel pain. We are mad at the current circumstances and someone else will take the blame by our name calling or slander. We gossip. We push wrongs under the rug. And we have no tools for reconciliation because we are not okay being honest about our sin and our need for confession and repentance. We want to maintain an image that is respectable. So instead, we hold on to hurts until they eat us alive from the inside and come spewing out later. It will always come spewing out. The only hope that we have is Jesus. Jesus who came from heaven to a people who would murder him so that he might reconcile them to himself and live in harmony with them forever and ever. 1 John chapter 3, verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Instead of hating our brothers, we sacrifice for them. We lay down our lives for them. As the example of Jesus laying down his life for us, Jesus didn't wait around for us to initiate reconciliation. He didn't wait for us to start a plan to forgive sins and redeem sinners. Jesus initiated reconciliation not when we paid every last penny, but before we existed, before the foundations of the world. And Jesus continues to reconcile us to the Father as our advocate, interceding for us. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the wrath against us and allows us to live in harmony with God the Father. And he did so not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Our advocate intercedes for us. Regular reconciliation is happening, being initiated by God the Father, by the Spirit, as He prompts us to reconcile, to see the serious nature of our sin of anger and insults. They are not okay. And it is not okay to push them under the rug. Christian brother or sisters, can we please be honest when we sin, when we sin against others? Can we confess that? Can we reconcile immediately? Can we initiate that? when we know we've been wronged by someone else. When someone has something against us, can we initiate that immediately? Can we initiate reconciliation regularly? We surely can. Because Jesus Christ, the righteous one, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 34, says, who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. 
We know who we are. And the beauty is we can say who we are. We can confess our sins to God and to one another, knowing that there has been reconciliation and harmony with God because of the work of Jesus on our account. No one can condemn us. No judge can send us to the jailer. We cannot be locked away because of Jesus' work of redemption and reconciliation with sinners. The same faith we put in Jesus to save us, put now in Jesus to reconcile us to our father and our brother, to our sister, our friends, and even our enemies. Jesus commands it. Pursue, initiate reconciliation immediately, regularly, daily, nightly. How do we do this? We do it by, hopefully, something we say a lot. And that is recalling and remembering the gospel daily. When I am daily remembering these truths of who I was before Christ, apart from Christ, the sins that lie within my heart because of the fall, in my position as a son of Adam, when I remember my position apart from Christ, and I remember the glorious work of redemption Christ has done on my behalf, reconciling me for all of eternity to the Father, when I know my heart and I know my sins, all the sins that I can keep quiet, I can't keep quiet from God. All of the respectable sins I can keep away from you, I can't keep from God. God knows everything, knows my heart, and guess what? He forgave and He has restored a relationship with me. And Jesus is regularly interceding on my behalf. Glorious good news. Why would I not be honest with my sin and my position in Christ, my position as a sinner who still struggles, and my need for recon constant reconciliation? with God and with others. Brothers and sisters, God looks at the law and in one way motivates us by means of the law. Here's the law and its punishment, but also motivates us with a good life of what it would be like to be constantly reconciled. Can you imagine the illustrations that are given? Can you imagine the reconciliation where you say, brother, I've walked four days away from my sacrifice that I might be reconciled to you? Can you imagine his heart? You did all of that, you sacrificed that just to be reconciled with me? The other illustration, can you imagine walking on your way to court and being pardoned by your accuser? No jail time, not having to pay back every last penny. Yet God has done that for all of eternity for us. May we do the same, holding the seriousness of anger and our words and speaking insults to one another. May we see that as a grievous sin that must be confessed and immediately reconciled, pursuing reconciliation with others immediately and regularly for the glory of God and the furtherance of his kingdom. Would you join me in praying? Father God, we ask and plead with you that you would give us a view of the serious nature of our sin in one that we feel like can be somewhat respectable, anger towards others, insults that might be uh, said of someone else, a tearing them down by our words. Everybody does it, but God, show us your heart towards it. Give us a, uh, a view of how serious this is in your economy that we would want to be quick to repent, not to harbor anger, 
not to let our insults hang. And someone have to figure out if we meant that really harmfully or with the sugar-coated way in which we gave it. Let us be people who are honest and transparent, who are not harboring anger or bitterness, and who are not speaking insults that can be taken a whole host of different ways, but being honest and transparent with our words. Gracious, because we've been shown grace. Father, thank you for reconciling us to yourself by means of your Son and his sacrifice for us. May we sacrifice on behalf of our brothers because we love them dearly. For your glory and the furtherance of the gospel, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.